I'm, I'm going to be looking at Psalm 133 this morning with you all. We're going to spend a good bit of time in, in that text, actually. Okay, let's begin with prayer. Father, we're grateful that you have, in your kindness, brought us together this morning around your word and, and around prayer and the worship of your name. We're thankful that you give us, or that you haven't left us to ourselves to figure out who you are and, and what it is that you wish and desire, but you have spoken clearly in your Son, and you've given us the deposit of your word to continue to be a light into our feet and our path. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we raise some questions about the Christian life and what it means to live together in the Christian life, that in your mercy, oh Lord, you would bless the teacher and those who are here to hear and that by your spirit, we would um, be open to what you have to say to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm speaking this morning, uh, good morning to everybody, I'm speaking this morning on, uh, we're in this series on Christian community, and I'm, I'm, I guess the title of mine is, How Do We Have Christian Community? Um, I, I'm going to, it's going to be a little bit of a shotgun blast at you this morning, so, you know, seatbelts on, it's not going to be completely um, stream of consciousness, one, one um, subject matter to another, we're going to skip around on some matters. Um, I wanted to enter, just talk, and, and I won't pursue these. I'm dropping these as lines into the ocean, okay? Um, but I wanted to talk about a, three things just before I hopped into Psalm 133, which will then be a springboard to another place, um, and then we'll go get our kids if, if you have to. Um, one of the things that I, you know, in my own sort of Christian experience and life lived when it comes to Christian community and I'm drawing here on some level from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic work, Life Together, which we've talked about that book around Advent before. Some of you have read Bonhoeffer's Life Together. I actually think it's a very good account, um, a very good Protestant account, I should say, an sort of Adventy kind of account of what grounds the Christian life and what provides the solid basis for why we can even have community um, and basically, we have, I mean, to get, you know, so I don't bury the lead here, we have community um, because of our union and our position in Jesus. We have community because we're the community of the baptized, we're the community of the redeemed, and that shapes fundamentally how we conceive of ourselves and how we conceive of others. That, and that's significant. It's a significant um, understanding of what it means to have community. So if you think about sort of the life together and community, Bonhoeffer's understanding of this, I, I have been intrigued. We've been talking about this around Beeson a little bit this semester. I've been intrigued to realize that Bonhoeffer's thoughts about the Christian life were born out of his experience in Christian community um, while he was a seminary professor at an underground seminary in a place called Finkenwalde, Germany. And so here it was in Finkenwalde. They were, it, was a, it was an off-the-record seminary. It wasn't, it wasn't an official seminary that had the stamp of the National Socialist of the day. They had come together to study for the Confessing Church, which was the church in Germany that had taken a decided stand against the rise of National Socialism within the country and especially within the German Protestant uh, Church. So they were off the radar. Um, they were committed. Um, it was dangerous to be a pastor in the confessing church at that time. Um, in fact, uh, we, we, we handed out a little booklet at, at the Beeson that has uh, some wonderful pictures. And I don't know if Kristen's in here or not, but, but the, uh, the gal who put this booklet together is coming to our church now. 
Um, and uh, it's, oh, there she is back here. Yes. Um, and it's a really fascinating picture of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Bible with the inside flap listing all the members of the seminary who were there at the time when Bonhoeffer was teaching. And there are crosses by each one that died in the war. And I would say it's over 70% of the names listed have a cross by them that indicate that they ended up dying in the war. So this was a very dangerous time. But one of the things that Bonhoeffer does, I think, in a very helpful way, is he makes a distinction about Christian community between an ideal community and a real community. And I think that's very helpful because we can tend to idealize Christian community in a way that can set us up for significant disappointment. And Bonhoeffer, I think, experienced this himself. Uh, uh, His work on Life Together was born out of that communal experience. Everyone's living together, studying theology together, preparing for ministry together. And it was not all roses and ice cream. Um, It was difficult. Some of the the students didn't really like the the regime. They didn't like what they were doing. There was some contesting that was going on within the community. In other words, it wasn't all peaches and cream. And I think that's very helpful because, this is maybe not a very good t-shirt for small group life around Advent, but I think the truth of the matter is the blessing of Christian community is community, and at times the curse of Christian community is community too, right? Um, And if you've been around, why? Well, because you're you're involved with people. Um, And... And just to sort of add to it, and you're you're there too, right? Um, So you're bringing yourself as a person into this, and that inevitably raises certain kinds of challenges that just because we might idealize the Christian faith, or we might idealize Christian community, once you hop into it, you're going to rub your life up against someone else's life, and inevitably, especially those of you who are married, you live in this all the time, you understand this, inevitably that will produce some friction, Um, So this raises challenges for us about what it means to come from solitude into the life of community and to live with one another. It's a challenge, I would say. In other words, before you hop in both feet, there's a good, I think, a good call to recognize that there's a a challenge to living life with other people because we're, well, we're sinners, right? So that's, I'm I'm dropped, I just dropped that one, right? Second one. Um, and I think uh, Victor Hansen um, sent me uh, uh, several several folks a link to David Brooks's recent commencement address at, at Dartmouth. Did any of you read this or see this on YouTube? That's your homework for the week. YouTube the uh, David Brooks Dartmouth address, his commencement address. It's very good. It's only like 15 minutes, and it's very moving. I think kind of like tear jerking, moving toward the end. So here's David Brooks, and he's speaking to this young millennial generation, which I have no idea really what that means, but he's speaking to millennials, whoever they are, and, um, and he's telling them in a very direct way, and I, I thought in a very bold way, given his context, two things. He's telling them, number one, I know about you millennials. You're all about relationships, right? You want relationships. Think about the rise of, and this is very different from my day, even as, as a teenager, but... Think about the, the hang, teenagers hanging out. They just want to hang out together. Coffee shop culture has just gone out the roof, just being around one another, whether it's really or virtually. There's this desperate desire for community and relationship and acceptance. 
Um, uh, we, we discovered, I didn't really know about this lookout, but we discovered the lookout on Shades Mountain off of the parking lot of Estavia Hills Baptist, one of the best views in Birmingham right there. Um, and if you're a family, you can loiter. If you're teenagers, apparently you can't. We were up there, and there were, there were these teenagers. I, I was there with Joe Gibbs, actually. So here Joe and I, we're sitting there talking. Our families are there, and, and, uh, and a police officer, Estavia Hills police officer, drives by and just yells on the loudspeaker, Go home! And I looked at Joe and I said, I think he's talking to us. Like, we need to go. And, 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 and he comes around and he says, that's not you. The teenagers need to go. And, and so the teenagers all rush off. And we're still standing there. And, and I kid you not, the police officer left. All the teenagers left. And 20 minutes later, there they were again, right? So Brooks is saying, you, you millennials, you really love relationships. You want relationships. But he said, another thing that I, I understand about you is, number two, um, you want to keep your options limitlessly open. And he said, the bad news is those two are mutually incompatible. You can't have limitless options, whether it is professionally or relationally, and really have long-term relational commitments and relational um, um, identities that you're, that you're really wanting. You can't have the one and the other. And then he went on to say, and I found this to be a real challenge, in fact, you're going to discover in your 30s that your ticket to freedom and joy is going to be in the limiting of your options. Putting your roots deep in relationships and commitments to others. And then at the end of the speech, he paints this picture about Dartmouth graduates, 30 years later, coming back and having committed themselves in marriage. I thought this was really bold, right? Very, very sort of counterculture, I would imagine, in this elitist kind of university world that he's speaking of because it's so moral, right? It sounds so moral. It sounds so, I don't know, Christian. And he's up there and he says, some of you are going to make a commitment to another person and you're going to live your life with that person and it's going to be hard and you're going to find that joy is found in the limiting of your relational options. And 30 years from now, you're going to come back and you're going to be in this place and you're going to have a whole different existence than what you can ever imagine now. It was, it was really a fascinating and very interesting speech. But I think he was really hitting a neuralgic point in our world now, in our, in, in, especially in American culture. We want relationships but we want limitless possibilities, options. We want to keep our options open. And those two are mutually incompatible for long-term committed relationships. And that has to do, I think, with marriage, but it has to do with, I think, how we view others as well within the Christian faith. This is our family, right? Um, and this is where I'm going before our day is over. This is who we are. Um, our fundamental identity is I'm baptized I've been claimed by Jesus. I'm a member of the redeemed. I'm a member of the community of faith. And that is at the core of my identity. And that core, that core identity means, and in self-giving, we find ourselves in relationships with others who claim the same familial identity. That's, that's what it, we are in this church. And that means, you know, that sometimes it's uh, not all, again, peaches and cream, but that's our identity. I, I encourage you to look at the Brooks thing. That was... Bomb number two. Number three, um, and I, these thoughts are inchoate, all right? I'm not completely formed on this, so I, I, I may change my mind in three weeks, or at least it'll certainly be more nuanced. 
But there's a lot of work that's been done. We're going to the Bible, by the way, <laughs> not too long. Um, but there's work has been done in the cognitive sciences. I don't know if any of you are interested in that kind of stuff, but I, I, I find it really endlessly fascinating. You know, we're basically just getting into the realm of understanding how our brains work. We just, you know, it's just incredible. Um, and as a Josh Menendez here, I'll be very careful what I say here. Um, but we just, we're just getting into understanding how brains work. And, and in this realm of cognitive science, I'll, I'll commend a book to you, by the way, but I think the last name is Levitin. Uh, oh, goodness, I'm forgetting it. I know the name of the book is The Organized Mind. Um, it's a fascinating book, basically engaging how our brains work. Now, I've heard a lot of this over at Sanford because we have actually someone who has done a lot of work in the cognitive sciences that teaches in the psychology department there. And uh, he taught something a long time ago that I picked up on, and I've tried to use it in my own teaching, and, I, and it's been very helpful, and it's born out of this whole burgeoning field of, of cognitive science, and that is we all have a cognitive load. It's a subjective thing. Yours is different than mine. And yours is different from the person who's sitting next to you. We have a cognitive load. And what that means is, at some point in time, um, learning stops. You fill the gas tank of your brain up to a certain point, and once you get to that, whatever that subjective thing is for you, once you get to that point, learning, done. Right? I think about that from the same, I teach languages, right? And I realize I can see it. I can see my students now out there. Right? The lights are on, but no one's home. I'm done. I mean, you, you, you can talk all you want to, but I'm, the learning is over. Right, it's over. Um, so I think about that from the standpoint of teaching. I, I've not read anything on this. I'm sure it's all out there. But I do recognize, from, if I can move that analogy of cognitive load, we have a capacity. It's subjective. Yours is different than mine. But once it's met, the learning stops. I think... Maybe this is a challenge for us to think creatively and critically together as a community. I think people have differing relational loads as well, right? It's different. Um, and, and this is tied and tethered some way to the ways in which we're hardwired. It's a subjective thing that's different from one person to another. Um, and I think about this from the standpoint of introverts and extroverts in the life of the church, right? Everyone likes the gregarious, effervescent. I mean, we're just sort of drawn to that person. They rise because they're visible and they're seen, and they just seem that that person, whoever that is, I'm thinking of here in the ideal, but that person has endless amounts of relational energy. Some of you look at someone like that, and you just think, I've got to go and take a nap right now. Right? <laughs> I mean, they feed off of it, engaging other people. And they go from one thing to another, and, and sometimes, here's the danger, sometimes we can attach, I think unwittingly, we can attach a Christ, Christian virtue to that, when really it's just how they've been made. Um, now this doesn't mean we don't challenge one another, but I think what it means is, because we're in a family and in a community of faith, with people who are hardwired in their personality in different ways, introverts versus extroverts. I mean, think about this. An extrovert feeds on relating to other people. It energizes them. An introvert will go into the realm of relationships with other people, but they got to go quiet to get their batteries charged again. I, I don't feed off of that. That drains me. And, and, and I think a lot of introverts know they need it. I need other people. I can't be left to myself. But if I'm going to get my batteries charged, i got to go home. and i got to be by myself for a little bit. I guess there's some middle category, androvert or something like that. Some who's, I, I don't know. If that, is that what it is? I can't remember. Andovert? Ambivert. What is it? Ambivert, like both sides. 
ambivert. Yeah, I think I'm an ambivert. Um, anyway, so I, I, whatever term applies to you, I do, I do think, and again, I'm, I haven't thought through this in the full way in which I think I need to, especially for teaching, um, but I do think that this whole notion about relational load, relational capacity, the ways in which people are hardwired, uh, you know, we need to be sensitive to that, I think, in the life of the church, that God has hardwired people in different ways in their ability and the amount of relating that they can do, right? And to, I think, give some people space for the differences of their personalities to allow their <laughs> gifts to be used in the life of the church to the fullest in the ways in which God has made them. One of the classic definitions of preaching that we toss around a lot at Beeson, one of the classic definitions of preaching is communicating God's word through the personality of the preacher. I mean, one of the most painful things in the world, and everyone who's preached or done any kind of public speaking when it comes to life of the church stuff, when you're coming up in that, everyone tends to, at one point or another, try to sound like the person they really like and admire, right? I love so-and-so preacher. So I'm going to try to work on the quality of my voice to sound like that. Uh, he or she pauses at that moment. I'm going to pause like that too. I mean, everyone's done that, I think, at one point in time. And when you catch on to it as a hearer, it's painful, right? Eventually, you've got to come, become comfortable with speaking and relating in a public setting, in a preaching setting, from the standpoint of how God has, has made you. And I think that's similar to the way in which we relate to one another in community in the life of faith. We commune with one another through the medium of the personalities that we have, the way in which God has hardwired us. And I think one of the things we need to all be very careful about, my, I put myself at the top of the list, is what we might call gift projecting in the middle of this. In other words, who do we tend to gravitate to just by the nature of how we're hardwired? We tend to gravitate to people who are like us, all right? because we like looking in the mirror. As much as we hate to admit it, I look and I go, well, it's not really Tom Selleck there, but I still like looking, right? So, so, and so you, know, you know what it's like. You open up the yearbook, or you see the family photos from the summer vacation, right? I look for me first. We're just, we love ourselves. We're just, we love ourselves. And so we're drawn, I think, by nature to people who are like us, which I think also, and here's the thing I think we need to be aware of, or just conscious of at some level. And we can, I think, uncritically and unthoughtfully be critical of others. I mean, uncritically toward ourselves. We can be critical toward others who aren't like us in the way in which they're hardwired. And that's, I think, part of the burden and the joy of the community of faith is to recognize that people and their relational capacity are different the one from the other. And I think it takes some real thought and patience to learn um, how to engage others who are different from us and not to project our own gifts onto them. In other words, I'm a hand. I love being around hands. Um, but that person there's a foot. I, you know, I've never been a big foot fan, actually. Um, but all of them are necessary in this life of faith. And I think it, it has turned into stream of consciousness. I'm sorry. Um, but I also, one other thing on this. And I also think. As you sit in the middle of a community of faith and look at a hand when you're afoot and you think, I really wish I were a hand. I, I, I wish God would not have made me a foot. Right. That as we need to run, beware of the danger of gift projection, we might want to be careful about the danger of, 
of gift jealousy too, right? You know, God hardwires us. He gives us spiritual gifts that are to be used in the life of the church, and the gifts are different the one from the other, but they're all necessary. I think we are in for big surprise, right? I think we're just in a big for a big surprise when the when the final show is over, and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. I think a lot of what we think is up and down will just be reversed. Jesus prepared us for that. The first is going to be last. The last is going to be first. These silent gifts, the non-effervescent gifts. I just think we're in for a surprise, and I think we're called in some ways as a community to recognize the gifts in others, to appreciate them, not to project our own, and to be careful about both gift jealousy and gift projection. I wasn't planning on talking about all that that long. Um, So before this gets too out of control, Psalm 133. I want to look at this together with you. You you want to ask any questions about that before I go on? This is Labor Day weekend. It's just us. Um, what, what, What do you want to bat around? You, you want to raise any questions about that? Oh, we don't need a microphone. Just let them yell it out. Anybody want to ask something? Victor? I think it's interesting how churches take on certain personalities based on, let's say, the leadership of the minister. You can have churches that seem to be made up of A-type people or you know, type A go-go-getters or B-type people. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, it's not just the individuals. Yeah, it's, fun. it's interesting you mentioned that. I was, I was thinking about that this morning before I came because I, I don't know what to do with that um, because I think that's certainly true. I mean, churches, we, churches become their own kind of culture, don't they? Um, and those cultural realities draw people in who are, how does one say, on the same team of that culture. Um, and that, that raises all kinds of, th- I think, questions about how we conceive of community in the Christian life. And I'm not, you know, I, there's multiple answers to that, but I think you're on to something, I mean, as far as the cultural realities of churches themselves and the personalities that they take on. Anything else? We don't want to bat it around. Anybody angry? Um, okay. All right, Psalm 133. Psalm 133. I realize our time is going. Well, let me just read this to us, and then I'll talk a little bit. How good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil that's poured on the beard, on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life evermore. A Psalm 133 is a, is a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm of life along the way, on the way to the temple. And as is often the case, I think, with anything that pertains to the Bible and Christian, Christian theology, surface accounts of the matter are often su- sufficient pressing into what's going on on the surface level. But when you begin to step back and maybe take a second glance at texts like Psalm 133, I think things begin to pop off the page. I, I talk to my students about the distinction between surface meanings and bonus meanings. It's not probably not the best terminology, but surface meanings are meanings that we just sort of read there and we get it, and, and it's rich, and it's enough. It's sufficient. What's Psalm 133 saying? It is a blessed, it is a good, it is a sweet thing when 
and I'll say, we're using brothers here to cover lots of gender, all right? But, uh, or at least two genders. Um, uh, uh, it's a, <laughs> um, uh, brothers and sisters, when we live together um, in, in unity, it is a sweet and it is a good thing. Matter of fact, it's so good that it's like oil. This might not be an image that lights your fire, but it would have been this time. It's like oil, nourishing, rich, fragrant, healing oil that's poured onto Aaron's head and it flows down his head and drips off the tips of his beard. It's that kind of beauty and sweetness and goodness. It's like dew on a mountain that comes off the top of the mountain and rolls down all the way to the base of Zion and gives blessing. That's what Christian unity, when unity works, when the community is coming together and living into what God has already established them to be as the community of the redeemed, it is a beautiful, it is a good, it is a rich thing. So I think the surface account of this is sufficient. I mean, we can close our books and go home. Psalm 133 is a psalm that's sung on the way to the temple, on the way to Passover, and on the way, let's sing about how great it is to be going to the house of the Lord with our brothers and our sisters to worship God. And when we do that together, it is a sweet and a beautiful and a rich and a fragrant thing. It's, it's great. But there's, um, I think there's a little more here. This is uh, what John Levinson calls an enigmatic little poem. I mean, to what does this text really refer to on final analysis? I mean, what's the situation out of which a text like this arose? I'll just go and tell you, I think the psalm is elusive. It's hard to tether to a particular moment. It's from David. But it's hard to tether to a moment because I think it's saying something universal about what it is for the people of God to be together. Now, I'm going to get a little academic with you, so don't check out on me, okay? There's a word here um, in the first verse. And I'm going to give you Psalm 133.1 again, and then I'm going to give you a different translation, if you're okay. I'm, I'm reading out of the NIV. I don't know what translation you have on your phones or whatever. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. I would say the King James Version... The New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, whatever version's on your shelf, they all, in effect, say the same thing. And it's a fine translation. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. But there's a a little word here, a little Hebrew particle, two little letters, a G and M. All right? Now, I don't mean this to be sort of a Gnostic goody this morning, okay? but, but there's something here um, in the original text that I think adds some salt and pepper, or maybe let me put it better, not salt and pepper, more like thyme or rosemary uh, to this text. I mean, I've still got the meat and the potatoes there, but this is going to savor it a little bit more. And the little word is gam, G-A-M is how we'd spell it, which is really a small little word in Hebrew. So I think it's a, the way we might want to tra- translate it is, gam means also or even. It's just a little connective particle, no big deal. But I think the verse really goes something like this, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers also live together in unity. When brothers 
even live in unity. Now you can hear that and you go, well, so what? Well, this is, maybe this is a slight so what. I could change my mind, but I think this is right. I think what the psalmist is saying here by the use of that small particle is he's making a claim. He's making a claim that the people of God who live together in unity and it's rich and it's beautiful and sweet ways, when the people of God do that, that they are not constituting their brotherhood or their sisterhood when they do that. In other words, they're not actualizing within the community when we come together and we live in unity. When we come together in unity, we are the brothers and the sisters of God. You can see, I mean, a lot of camp songs can come out of that kind of idea, right? When we come together in unity, we are now the brothers and the sisters of God. And what the psalmist is saying is that's actually not right. The brotherhood, the sisterhood, the familial identity, that's there, whether the unity exists or not. That's what I think the forces of the even or the also. How good it is when brothers even live together in unity. Because they're already brothers. That's established. That's not something that can change. But how much more so, how sweet it is and how beautiful it is when that group of people who are brothers and sisters together, when they live together in unity. Let me read this to you from Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Christian brotherhood, he says, is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. I'm going to read the quote again. That, by the way, is Psalm 133.1, recalibrated through Bonhoeffer's uh, terms. I think that's exactly what Psalm 133.1 is claiming. This is what he says. Brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. We don't make ourselves brothers and sisters. It is rather a reality created by God and Christ in which we may participate. And here the psalmist says, and by the way, when you participate in that reality, it is a good and a sweet and a beautiful thing. So we're not instantiating, we're not actualizing, we're not making real Our brotherhood and our sisterhood, our family identity and the life of faith, that's there because of who we are in Jesus, period. It's not idealized, that is realized, actualized, made effective by the person and the work of Jesus. So, I mean, to go back to the title of the Sunday School lesson this morning, how do we have Christian community? The answer to the how question is really a who, right? How do we have Christian community? We have Christian community because of who we are in Jesus, because of our identity in him. Now let's press on into the next verses. And now you go into the imagery. It's like precious oil poured on the head. Precious oil, priestly oil, flowing down from the head of the, to the beard of Aaron and down to the opening of his clothes. What a scene. It's like dew from Mount Hermon that trickles down from the, onto the lower mountains of Zion. Hermon, Mount Hermon, was a nine, is a 9,200-foot-high mountain. And here's something for you. About 120 miles north of Jerusalem. In other words, no dew from Hermon was hitting Zion. That wasn't happening. It doesn't trickle down and hit the, the, that far south. So I think what we're seeing here is the imagery is not geographical in nature. It's spatial. It's spiritual. 
Christian unity, what holds the image together of the oil on Aaron's head flowing down to his beard, or the dew trickling down from Mount Hermon all the way to the lower mountain of Mount Zion? The overlap of the imagery is that Christian unity flows from the head downward to the beard and the clothes. It's like dew that flows from a towering mountain to a lower mountain of Zion. The glory of the head streams its blessing like trickling oil, like running dew down to those who are under it. So the oil comes from the head down to the body. Verse 3 sheds enormous light on what's going on here. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. On Zion's mountain is the location where the Lord demonstrates his superiority, his sovereignty over all things, even over his own blessings. And what is the blessing here? The blessing that he's talking about is everlasting life. Life evermore. I think it's interesting when you get into Paul, especially a book like 1 Corinthians. He emphasizes that the deliverer will come out of Zion. It's worth observing that God's promise is to take charge and to command to oversee his blessing. He's sovereign over his blessing is most pointedly and most perfectly made manifest in the person and work of his Son. And there we see the blessing that flows from the head to the Son down to the body. I mean, you know this, right? I mean, isn't it fascinating when you have someone like Paul who's involved in a stoning of Stephen and then Jesus arrests Paul on the way to the road to Damascus, and he asks Paul, Saul, Saul, that was the name at the time, why are you persecuting me? I mean, that, the way in which Jesus speaks so personally about the persecution, the stoning of Stephen being related physically to Jesus himself. And what, what's Saul's response? I didn't do anything to you. Right? But yes, you did. This is the body language that we have from Psalm 133, and then we also have it here in the New Testament. That is, we don't have a body without a head. And you don't have a head without a body. You you need both. Um, And this is where I think we begin to see, and I don't know if you conceive it this way, it's, it's a lot to really take in, frankly, but to conceive of the life of the church, our church body even here, as being organically related and fitted to the head of Jesus. Jesus and us, we're related in a continuum of the same body related to the same head. I think that's why you get to some crazy verses in the New Testament. There's some wild ones. I mean, Paul's saying something like, I carry about, 2 Corinthians 4, I carry about in my body the death of Jesus. Oh my God, who says stuff like that? Or Colossians 1, verse 24, I make up that which was lacking in his suffering by my own suffering. I wouldn't say, I don't say that publicly. Right? I wouldn't say that. I mean, what is he saying? What Paul is saying and what he's intimating here is the organic relationship between the churchly body of, of, of Jesus and the actual person, Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. And that's who we are. That's why I think 
In Psalm 133, it's telling us that it's a beautiful and a noble and a precious thing, a fragrant thing, when Christians live into the reality of what they already are. By the way, I think that's a good way of thinking about the Christian life in its totality. We live into, by God's grace and His Spirit, what we already completely and fully are. We're not making that happen. He has made that happen in the person and the work of His Son. He has made genuine community possible on the basis of the person and the work of His Son. It's why we can have legitimate possibilities for, to have communion and fellowship and genuine relationship with people who are from a very different socioeconomic orbit than you are or very different background than you are or different educational background than you are. Jesus provides the possibilities for us to have engagement and encounter and communion with those people because he has made it real. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a noble thing. It's a precious thing. It's like oil on Aaron's head, flowing down. When brothers and sisters walk into that already established reality because of what Jesus has done for us in his person and in his work. You know, we live in a world today where there, are, there is a lot of confusion, an enormous amount of confusion, about coming to terms with what it means to be a self. To have identity. Who are we? You don't like your identity? Change it. You don't like who you are? Fix it. All right? We're living in a, in a time of enormous complexity when it comes, and dissolution, really, when it comes to the notion of what it means to be a self. And how we conceive of the self when we look in the mirror. All right? How do we conceive of our identity, of who we are? And I think this is the challenge that Psalm 133 and frankly the whole of the Bible in its collective voice about the call to be members of the people of God. That our fundamental identity, what shapes us at the core of who we are, is we are those who are the redeemed. We are the community of the known. We're known. We've been named. We've been claimed by someone else. We've been claimed in the waters of baptism, and we've been given the gift of faith and regeneration by the power of the Spirit. And that's who I am. And everything else in my life is a spoke that goes back to that center. And I, I'll just, I, 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 unless you think that I'm on some sort of you know, soapbox here or speaking down, this is something that is an area of continued repentance in my life, and I'm sure it is for you as well. Because I really like for the spokes to become centers that shape who I am. I prefer it that way. I mean, what, it doesn't matter what it is, right? Fly fisher person, right? Or baseball coach, or teacher, or father, or parent, or member of whatever council, or this, my job, right? I mean, again and again, we take spokes and we want to make them the center, but what the scriptures do to us is what they do by their very nature. The Scriptures disorient you and me. You know, we go into the Bible expecting to see a mirror of ourselves, but what we see when we go into the Bible is really the world of God, and we're drawn into it. It's not a mirror of you. It disorients you. It disorients me. It dislocates me and myself and draws me into the center that is the person and work of Jesus. 
And I think that's the call and the challenge of the life of community with one another without in any way trying to idealize what it is to be around other people. Right, I get it, right? I'm one of them, okay? But it's a recognition that our, our identity and our ability to relate to other people in the community of faith is shaped at its core by what Jesus has done for us in his person and in his work. And not only what he did for us, but what he continues to do for us even now. Who am I? You've heard me say it before. You've heard it in other contexts. I'm the one who's safely hidden in him now. That's my true identity. And we're called by God's grace to live in community in that reality. Okay? Let, let me, I don't know if I have any time left. Well, I have one question. Anybody want to ask one question? Sure. Hey, Mark. Hey, Jason. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I mean, bring, a, bring a counterfactual. No, no, no. I, I just, I actually, it's, it's a true biblical theological sort of conundrum. How does this idea of, how does everything you say, can we extend that also, and could you help us understand in 30 seconds or less, um, does this extend past this life? How are we in communion with those who have died in Christ? Are we in communion with those who have died in Christ? It was a problem for centuries, and Protestantism hasn't been able to to shake it out very well. I'm just curious if you, in your study, if you've thought about it. <laughs> um, well, I know, I know, I know. Same thing here. I mean, I, th- I think there's a couple of angles at that, or and why, why, why do I hesitate? Well, because we've seen its abuse, right? Any policy that you have in your business. In my school, Beeson Divinity School, all these policies that we have, somebody abused something, and now we've got a policy, right? Um, so I, I realize that you know, we, there's, there's been some abuse in this, but I think we must recognize that there is an organic, and I, I want to use the term ontological, but I'll avoid it, because there's an organic relationship between the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant, that's you and us, we're still slogging it out down here. The church triumphant are in all the glory that is awaiting them in the heavenly realm. And we are organically fitted the one to the other. And in the, we sing that hymn around here, don't we? The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ the Lord. And mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. I, I don't know the full ramifications of what that means. But I do think we find, from a Hebrews 11 standpoint, an enormous amount of encouragement. I think that's where the scriptures go with this. To encourage us to recognize that there are those who have gone before, and they are there even now cheering us on. I mean, what is it that the martyrs say in the book of Revelation? How long, O Lord, until our blood is avenged? Well, their blood is organically related to the blood of the current martyrs now. In other words, those martyrs who are crying out in heaven for their blood to be avenged, they're crying that out in light of those 20 Coptic Christians on the beach in Libya. There's some organic fitting between those whose rest is one and us here who are in the church militant even now. Now, where that comes to sort of veneration and where that comes to asking saints to pray for us, of course, that's something that we could raise a lot of critical questions about, and we can see where it has been abused. But a recognition that there is a relationship between those who have gone before and us now, fitted in heaven, where we are all properly located in our citizenship, that is certainly to be affirmed and not attenuated in any way. And I'll just say this from the standpoint of the book of Psalms. When the psalmist really feels like the people of God need to be encouraged, he goes to the past and says, look at the people who went before. So I do, I mean, I know you're a church historian, a historian, so you can appreciate this, but uh, that's one of the things that I find great encouragement from reading Christian biography and Christian history. 
Not for imitation. Don't try to be Martin Luther. That would be a bad idea, right? Especially for your poor wife, I'd imagine, right? Now, don't try to be Martin Luther, right? But we read for inspiration, for encouragement, because those are people who lived in life as well, and they had to navigate some very complicated things. And we get to follow in their footsteps and see their failures, right? And the way in which God sustained them by faith in light of that. So uh, there's, some, there's some organic fitting, and I don't even mind using the term mystical. Um, but what the full implications of that are, I, I, I'm, I'm not, that's an open question to me. Goodbye.